everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Janssens. Our guest today is Nick Milanovic, founder of This Week in FinTech and general partner of the FinTech Fund. Nick has spent the last decade working in FinTech and microfinance and is one of the leading voices covering FinTech globally. He's also been a key organizer in building the FinTech community, bringing together FinTech enthusiasts all over the world. Earlier this year, he closed the FinTech Fund, a VC fund focusing on early stage FinTech after many years as an active angel investor. Prior to This Week in FinTech and the FinTech Fund, Nick was high number one at Funding Circle, led strategy at Petal, and subsequently led BD and strategy for Google Pay and Google Finance. In today's episode, we cover topics including the growth of This Week in FinTech, how Nick's start in microfinance has affected his views on FinTech, how we can build diverse communities in FinTech, Nick's love of music, and much, much more. Hi, Nick, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm calling in from New York today, just at home. All right. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, can you give a brief overview of your career to date and uh, how you came to be in FinTech? Yeah. Um, my career to date has been just becoming a progressively bigger and bigger and bigger fintech enthusiast. So I probably need to get like a new hobby at this point. Um, but I've been working in fintech for like a little under 12 years now. Was originally super interested in microfinance, um, worked in microfinance throughout college and um, researching international development. And then um, got connected to the co-founders of Funding Circle and a light bulb went off and I said, oh, there's actually a much more interesting way to um, help people out financially who were shut out of access to products than you know working in the nonprofit world. And so joined as the first hire of Funding Circle back in 2012, which at this point makes me sound pretty old, and was there for about five years, leading partnerships, um, company IPO'd in 2018. I left and joined the early team at Pedal in New York, um, building a credit card um, using Plaid data, and was gonna go to business school just Ended up saying no to business school entirely and forfeiting my tuition deposit to stay on at Plaid because um, I really like the team. Led strategy there for three years and then got poached to go work over at Google Pay, um, where I was for two years before um, switching to the dark side and working full time for uh, you know my own venture fund, the FinTech Fund, where we do pre seed seed stage investing um, and writing this week in FinTech, um, which is meant to be kind of like one concise newsletter to capture everything going on in FinTech over the week. And I'm sure lots of our listeners are familiar with This Week in FinTech. Um, I'd love to dig in a little bit more about the microfinance angle. And, um, you know, you talk elsewhere about kind of microfinance and how Grameen Bank was specifically was pretty influential on you kind of early in your career. How do you think that kind of early focus on microfinance has affected kind of the career you've had in FinTech? I'm not sure if you ever see the uh, interviews in the music industry that this interviewer named uh, Nardwall conducts, but he also has this like very in-depth research and perspective on his interview candidates. And so I'm amazed that you were able to find information on my love for Grameen. And I'm very impressed um, you know, with all the research that you put into these episodes. But to answer your question, my career has taken like a very circuitous route, I would say, but my core interests uh, are eventually getting back to how you can help people improve their financial situations. I think we have the means and the technology and the uh, global interconnectivity to really pull people out of extreme poverty on a level that we haven't before um, in history. And you're, you've seen a lot of that um, over the last, like even just like 30 years of development, like the rates of extreme poverty in a lot of regions in the world have, have just like dropped off a cliff. Um, and I think that FinTech is part of that picture. 
And so that was what originally got me interested in microfinance is you're basically harnessing market forces and, you know, the lending kind of profit motive to create social good um, by having like lending circles and communities that banks wouldn't lend to, by empowering women as the head of household or as the non-head of household to manage the money on behalf of the household in certain regions. Um, and I think that you see a lot of that in like the DNA of most fintech where, um, you know, Newbank made credit accessible to people for the first time, you know, throughout much of the country. Um, and you have similar stories with like UPI in India, um, where, you know, people can now collect and send digital payments uh, for the first time for goods and services. Um, and so that's kind of what really what makes me passionate about fintech. But like the route's taking me to a lot of places where you get excited about other stuff like that's in the nitty gritty, like a, a great compliance platform or, you know, really interesting like infrastructure to like be able to deliver and manage money more seamlessly. Thank you. And I appreciate the uh, comparison to Melbourne. Wait until I ask you about your uh, travel blog later. But um, <laughs> uh, I certainly first heard about you from This Week in FinTech. Um, it's an amazing newsletter. I'm sure many, many listeners are subscribed to it. And if you're not, you definitely should be. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of the journey from This Week in FinTech's growth to kind of a newsletter to your team at Pedal and among your friends to what is today with, I think, 20,000 plus subscribers. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I'm very lucky that. The newsletter has grown up at the same time as fintech as an industry. Um, and we have a fantastic team of 15 now that are working for this week in fintech. And, you know, I think I, I get a lot of the credit for it, but it really wouldn't be possible without, um, you know, everybody on the team, you know, working in concert. So, yeah, we the newsletter has been around for about three years now. And we've got, uh, I think, 33,000 weekly readers as, as I last checked the count. And we started hosting an events about a year and a half ago. And have had like 15,000 people come through events on five continents now. Australia is the last holdout, so hopefully we'll get there. But all focused on really bringing together local fintech communities and creating tighter bonds within different ecosystems. And, you know, fortunately, I started out the newsletter as like an internal team email to our pedal team and then forwarded it to a couple of friends, just giving like a weekly news update. And they're like, oh, this is great. Subscribe me. And I said, well, there's no way to subscribe. I just send this out as an email. But that was kind of the genesis of, um, you know, setting it up as its own, um, you know, newsletter and email and making it public into the place that it is now, you know, three years later. Fortunately for me, you know, in that time, <clears throat> there were a lot of inflection points for fintech. Uh, it was like a pretty unloved product category, um, you know, even just like four years ago. Um, and then key events like, uh, you know, Visa's attempted acquisition of Plaid, um, you know, made everybody sit up and say, oh, this is interesting. There's like real tech we can build here. There's real exit opportunities if I'm an investor. And what I've enjoyed so much about that is like, yeah, all right, there's more media attention. There's more venture dollars in fintech. But really, it's great having this flood of super talented people building and working on fintech products. You know, I have been working in fintech since 2011. And the space looked very different um, back then where... Like it was this like weird hobbyist community. Um, and we'd have these meetups organized by Matt Burton, who's at QED now, was then at Orchard, where it'd be like in somebody's basement and like there would be like, you know, 25 of us and it'd be the only 25 people in FinTech in San Francisco. And, um, you know, nobody knew what to call the space. And we were like, do we call it like online lending or like new finance? And, you know, teams grew and like offering a tech salary was always like attractive, but you weren't getting like brilliant people for the most part, like who wanted to like work in FinTech. It was more like, how do I start the next social media company? And now, it, you know, we're in a very different environment where like, I feel very fortunate by how many like inquisitive, curious minds there are working on new products and trying to figure out different ways to kind of re-architect financial infrastructure globally. 
the uh, the meetings in a basement sound very different from a multi-hundred person gala at the Metropolitan. I'd love to talk a little bit about how This Week in Fintech has grown pretty exponentially from a single weekly newsletter. So can you talk a little bit about the range of topics that you guys cover today and obviously the, the team members in kind of different countries that contribute? I think most people assume that I'm just like putting my name on the newsletter at this point, but I still write three weekly newsletters for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you know have been doing so every week for the last three years. And hopefully we'll get to keep doing so, you know, for the future, because I really enjoy writing it. It keeps me kind of in the loop and, and sharp on what's going on. But, you know, it's scaled like well beyond me at this point. So our, our goal is to really be like the tech crunch for fintech. Like if you read nothing else, like this should just give you a good overview of what's going on in the fintech space and be like kind of like the front page of fintech. And, you know, to, to build that out, it's really important for us to have different geographic regions covered. And so Christine Chang is our fantastic editor in Latin America who works with the team down there to, to compile LATAM news every week. Uh, Osborne Saldana writes our Southeast Asia and India edition um, weekly. And then Michael Jenkins runs our uh, UK and Europe edition for the whole of, of FinTech um, you know, on a weekly basis um, on the continent there. We also recently added Ning Ye, who's writing a monthly China edition. Chinese FinTech developments have been like super I would say opaque um, and difficult to understand for people who are not fluent in the region. And her writing has been great. Um, and we're trialing a new Africa edition um, written by Mika Jene, who I think has been a fantastic writer on, on just tech in Africa, you know, period. Other than that, you know, I definitely want to highlight like the work of Mohammed Hamdi, who's a student at the Harvard Kennedy School right now, who writes on public policy for us. And then um, something that we're trying that's a little bit new, you know, when I mentioned kind of like the front page of global fintech, like the comparison that I draw is to TechCrunch. Um, but Sophie Vo on our team is the editor for our premium content. And now we're putting out a lot more research, a lot more subscriber content, deep dives and interviews um, written by Des Fleming on our team. Um, and so Sophie is trying to build kind of like the economist of fintech, I would say, where there's a lot more value added insights and uh, analysis. But like, as you can probably tell, like none of this is possible without this great team. And like, we're always looking for more writers from the fintech space to come join us. Um, or people just come talk on, you know, anything that they want to, like writing a guest piece. I'm like really impressed with yourself and the rest of the uh, Warden FinTech team with all the great content and interviews and kind of insightful conversations that you've put together. And I think that there's so many other great writers in the space. Um, people I read every week, um, like include like Alex Johnson, Jason Mikula, Simon Taylor, Lex Sokolin, um, there's so many other, Nicole Casperson, there's so many other people that I should name who, you know, I'm not getting a chance to, who I think are great writers in and of themselves. Um, and so it's a really great time to get into fintech if you're trying to learn quickly because of their writing. Yeah, there are some amazing uh, voices out there, and I, I very much described to Alex Johnson, and I think I found it through This Week in Fintech. So much credit to you and the team for pointing me there. I know it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I think you've described or at least replied to somewhere elsewhere that uh, you have an ambition for a media empire within fintech. So kind of looking at the next couple of years, um, what's next for the newsletter other than, you know, more regional coverage, deeper coverage, premium content? Yeah, you know, we've been operating and I'm, I'm glad we scheduled the uh, interview this week and not last week. We've been operating as kind of what I like to say in loudspeaker mode for the past three years, where everything that we're doing is we're organizing it or broadcasting it. So, you know, we host events or we write newsletters or, you know, we host a podcast. But what I want to build goes kind of beyond media. I want to put together 
the industry association for financial technology. Um, and that requires a lot more than just like a fixed media asset. Um, it means really developing kind of one place for the fintech community to come together. So we made an announcement last week that we um, acquired and rebranded the uh, Finnovation Slack community, which is a community of about 5,000 people in fintech that's grown organically over the past three years. Um, the growth of Finnovation really mirrors the growth of this week in fintech over the same period. And Shamir Karkal, who founded Simple and now is the CEO of Scylla, um, and his team over at Scylla, you know, put together the Finnovation Group, and it's just grown, you know, like crazy, very organically over that time. But you know, there's a lot of people who are really engaged in the community. There's not like a lot of structure, I would say, or programming. And so we started talking, you know, nine months ago about whether we can combine these two. Um, and so I'm glad that it finally is seeing daylight now because I think the next real step for us is to put together like a kind of Reddit style for FinTech specifically, where we have a ton of content curation and programming and a glossary of terms, and it's free and accessible to anyone who wants to join. And it's really useful for people who are working in FinTech um, to be able to network within that community. And maybe it looks like Slack in perpetuity. Maybe it looks like there's another platform that's better for us to keep growing that community. But my goal is to have, you know, an association for people working in FinTech where you have local chapters um, and you have the ability to really um, kind of network your way to the right people, whether it's like looking to hire someone or looking for a customer or looking for a vendor or looking for an investor. And all this is available through this week in FinTech. Because I think, you know, to be resilient long term, like if I burn out or get hit by a meteor tomorrow, you know, I, I want to have something that's like really community built um, so that it outlasts me because I don't think I need to be kind of like the bottleneck for things going on. Yeah, I saw the news last week and I'm sure it'll, uh, we wish you the best of luck with that venture and I, I'm very excited for it personally. Um, that actually segues perfectly to the next thing I wanted to talk with you about, which is just community building. So um, I had the pleasure of meeting you at a This Week in FinTech meetup this summer in New York. I'd love to hear from you why you think it's important that the FinTech community should be coming together kind of in person to meet, especially post-COVID. You know, it's funny. I was actually just uh, talking earlier this morning with the team over at um, Emigrant Bank and Milstein Companies, which is like one of the first partners early on for Brex um, and has a lot of fintech bets of their own now. And, you know, somebody in that meeting was saying, it's interesting, like in New York, there's a lot of industries that are built around zero sum games um, and competition and kind of adversarial relationships. And then you go to Silicon Valley in San Francisco and it's like a very different city culturally where a lot of people really believe in positive sum and they believe in helping each other out and paying it forward. And, you know, not just in your personal lives, but as an industry. And I, I like definitely subscribe to the San Francisco mentality. I think I, I believe in karma um, professionally. And I think that creating good karma, you know, benefits the people that you help and it benefits yourself in the long run if you create enough of it. And so I really do like want This Week in Vindex to continue to being a neutral meeting place for the entire fintech community and that bringing people together, even bringing people who are like working on competing products together um, is net positive, um, you know, for fintech as a, as a community and as an industry. Um, and I think that that's somewhere where like we are growing an industry very differently than like the traditional financial services industry, where a lot of, you know, zero zone competition, um, you know, isn't necessarily the way that companies and pe people within those companies operate. Uh, so for me, community means like, don't think of fintech as like my company versus your company or my product versus your product. Think of it as all of us together versus, you know, traditional outdated legacy financial system that we should all be seeking to, you know, improve and replace piecemeal. 
Amazing. And, um, you know, I'll plug it here if you want, but I'm very much looking forward to the FinTech formal coming up. So uh, I know there's some there's some great community events that are kind of building on that positive vibes and, you know, good non-zero sum mentality. I know it's something I'd love to chat about a little bit, but um, I know you're organizing a trip to the Middle East in December to kind of highlight fintech leaders in that region. And I'd just love to ask, obviously, with an expansion newsletter, like, how central is it to the kind of this week in fintech team to focus on emerging fintech markets, as well as kind of, you know, the kind of classic US-based fintechs? Yeah, it's a good question. And, oh, man, we've bitten off so much <laughs> with this fintech track. I hope we're going to be able to replicate it on an annual basis. Um, but there's a lot of behind the scenes coordination that goes on. So all of our events for the last year and a half have been like focused on local communities. Thank you for mentioning the FinTech Formal. I'm excited for that one. And we've, you know, that's probably like our most destination event, I would say, where people fly in for it. But we haven't like really had like much in the way of like destination event programming. And so our trek in uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi at the end of the year is going to be our first one. And so there's like a question like, why are we doing this? Um, you know, we're not making any money off of it. We're probably going to lose some money. It's not like this is something that we're going to be able to like easily rinse and repeat. There's a lot of work that goes into it. But there is so much interesting innovation happening outside of the U.S. and Europe and fintech. Some concepts that are honestly like more innovative than, you know, the, the fintech that you have built over here in New York. And it's gravitating to like these central hubs, you know, Sao Paulo and Mexico City in Latin America you know, uh, Cairo, um, and then more traditionally Lagos um, in, in Africa, and Bangalore, and, uh, you know, the UAE uh, in Asia. I, I mean, those are just like a few, but like, honestly, like Kampala, Jakarta, uh, Bogota, like there's fintech hubs everywhere. I think there's a big opportunity to create connections across borders and like really highlight all the great work that's being done in one ecosystem. Um, and so we took a survey last year and said, if you could take a trek anywhere to meet with like the fintech leaders in this place, um, you know, what would be your first choice? Um, and Dubai scored, I think, like first or second on there. And so we said, okay, well, let's just, let's do it. Let's just organize a chance for like 25 people to come to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and meet with all the fintech leaders there. And the reception has been great, both on people interested in attending and on, um, you know, regulators, entrepreneurs, investors interested in hosting us. While we're on the topic, I'd also love to shout out your call kind of for more applications from diverse candidates, specifically women and minorities. So I'd love to ask you kind of as part of the fintech community, how do you think we can be better at promoting, you know, more diversity in fintech spaces? Cautionary saying that this is from two white men conversing on a podcast, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's a good question to ask. And like, it's it's good that like we're in a place as an industry where like two white men on a podcast are thinking about how they can contribute to um you know improving diversity like it the burden of diversity should not have to fall on diverse people and so it's, it's a good question to ask fintech sits at the intersection of finance and technology and these are two industries that traditionally have been dominated by people who kind of like fit the same profile um and there's a lot to unpack there but uh you as a person are like more likely to join an industry where you see more people who you feel are good models for you um, and who you can see yourself becoming like. Um, you're more likely to join an industry and like move up in it like where you have friends working in that industry or if you have connections to different companies in that industry. Um, and so in my mind, it's not enough to just say like fintech companies are open to hiring anyone and it doesn't matter what your background is. Um, you kind of have to be like less passive and more proactive to get to the goal of like building a more representative industry 
where you're like creating channels and you're creating, you know, mentorship and networking sessions. Like we do women's focused networking sessions before our events in Latin America that Christine has been leading. And you really promote the profiles of people who come from like underrepresented backgrounds working within FinTech. And like when you do things proactively like that, I think you make it easier for people who are like on the sidelines to say, hey, I can act, I want to jump into FinTech and I want to work on FinTech because I actually see people there that I think I could be like, or I see people there who like look like me or come from the same background as me. But it doesn't happen automatically and it doesn't happen overnight. I think it's a work in progress and it'll always be a work in progress. But um, if each of us is kind of doing a small thing to improve representation, you know, I think that we really meaningfully get there in a way that like many other industries may not. Yeah, and and fintech is breaking down a lot of old institutions as is. So I think you know, hopefully, we can continue to do so from from the internal side as well as from the external perspective. Moving on a little bit, and would love to congratulate you on kind of closing the fintech fund. So you closed the fund, your first fund earlier this year. Um, I know you've been an active angel investor in fintech for quite some time. So I'd just love to hear a bit about your journey from kind of working in fintech to being you know somewhat of a media commentator on fintech and eventually now becoming kind of a more institutional investor yeah everybody's like nick what made you decide to move to the dark side um <laughs> and it's been an interesting transition um i i loved and still love working on fintech products like i don't think there's anything that's you know quite as good as like that friday town hall where you're like looking at you know user growth and you're looking at um you know people you know metrics and feedback when people really use your products and um it's like super high affinity and you like get case studies of people um you know who are using the product that you built and put it out in the market and designed and researched um there's really nothing like that so i do miss like the company building side um maybe one day i'll be back but i like naturally found myself just like trying to stay on top of everything happening in this like very crowded very quickly moving space and that i think lent itself over time to investing and it started you know years and years and years ago with angel investing and then managing a syndicate and then the syndicate led to the fund one which has been uh, in my mind like a very successful proof of concept and now i'm starting to have early conversations raising fund two which is like really kind of institutionalizing where we see our core competency being and the thing that i really really enjoy about investing uh, is kind of on two sides one it's meeting really sharp people and hearing their vision for the future especially when it's like a non-consensus vision and they're like, actually, I'm building something that nobody's thought of before. Um, because then you get to kind of see that path take shape from the start and, you know, see some small product become a segment, become an industry over time. Um, so academically, it's like a really, you know, interesting way to say, what do you think is going to happen in the future? And how do you actually, um, you know, put skin in the game um, to support that vision? But then after the investment, like it helps me scratch that itch of still being involved with the early stage teams. That's what I really loved from working early at Funding Circle and working early at Pedal. I spent a lot of time with each of the founders we invested in, just talking about the product, talking about strategy, putting them in touch with vendors, helping them decide between like, you know, banking services providers, term sheets, that kind of thing. It's not quite the same as like sitting on the team. Like I think if you like asked Steve Kerr, like, would you rather live a week in the life of like you as the Warriors head coach or you as, you know, that Steve Kerr on the 98 Chicago Bulls? Like he'd probably rather be like on the court. Um, there's just something that you can't capture when you're like on the investing side and you're not like really part of the day-to-day -day team, but it lets me scratch that. It's a little bit working with early stage founders. Yeah. Um, I've had, I've had the same from, from people who've made the switch from kind of operating to investing. So you described the FinTech funds mission kind of loosely, and maybe I'm paraphrasing as, um, a way to let the FinTech community reinvest in the FinTech community. I'd love to hear you talk a little more about that. 
the genesis for the fund, it's a good question, uh, was really, um, or maybe like even like at a like more like generic level, like I believe in the idea of like kind of building piecemeal and like building things in concentric circles so that each broader circle builds on the core competencies and capabilities of the last one. I think you can build something much more resilient that way than like building something de novo entirely. And so the reason I bring that up is because working in fintech, I started getting connected to good founding teams and angel investing in them personally. And then the interest in like me as an angel investor kind of eclipsed my ability to like, you know, invest in these deals myself. And so I put together a syndicate. Um, the syndicate really helped with due diligence. It helped with collaboration on deal flow. And we invested about $2 million across 40 companies in like a year and a half. And when I took a look back at the syndicate, like what was going well, what wasn't going as well after one year, I said, okay, we're getting into really competitive deals that are shutting out name brand VCs. We have a really big group of like power hitters in fintech, um, you know, in our syndicate. Those both are going well. What's not going well is like managing a syndicate is, um, you know, a lot of hurting cats and to founders, it's not great to be like, I think we really want to invest, but we'll let you know in two weeks. And I'm not sure how much, but we'll let you know. And so I said, okay, well, if, if we're really getting into these good deals, there should be demand to put a fixed capital vehicle together to make these investments. And so that was the genesis for the first fund. And so the first one was kind of meant to prove three things. It was a $10 million fund. We invest mostly in pre-seed and seed stage fintech companies. And I've been deploying it since the beginning of this year. Um, and it was meant to prove, you know, number one, that we can still get into really competitive, fast-moving deals, um, get allocation. Um, you know, number two, that like founders actually thought of this as like a fund, taking fund allocations, you know, writing, you know, $250,000, checks, not just taking like an angel allocation. And then number three, that, you know, we could be a very friendly player in the ecosystem, just like what we are with This Week in FinTech, not lead rounds and bring other investors into the market. And so like a lot of our LPs are themselves like direct FinTech investors, um, you know, NICA, Gradient, Bain Capital Ventures, like they all do direct investments. And the reason for that is because we like to meet founders early and then say, oh, you're still looking for a lead for this round? Well, let us introduce you to like one of our LPs um, because they'll you know, lead the round and we'll co-invest. So I think we've proven out those three theses with the first fund. And so that's leading me to start raising uh, FinTech Fund 2 um, you know, this quarter, um, where it's really just doubling down on that core competency. Still pre-seed and seed, still helping early stage teams. Um, you know, writing the similarly sized checks and raising a $25 million fund to invest over the next two years. And again, like it all comes back to good karma. Like I spent a lot of time talking to founders who we don't invest in, um, you know, even after we don't invest in them. You know, if capital is kind of like one more good thing that we can do to create, you know, positive sum dynamics for fintech, uh, I think it's a really valuable pursuit. Amazing to hear about uh, fund two coming up, coming down the pipeline. I've heard you describe early stage investing as space exploration. So I'd love to hear as kind of an investor and explorer in fintech. Um, what are some trends that you've been focusing on in the last few months? Yeah, I'm just trying to make it to the moon. It's a good question. And I'm glad you brought that quote up. And just to like explain the analogy a little bit, there's a lot of uh, nervousness and hangringing right now about investing period, just because we're in a year where we're going through a market correction and you know, probably a small um, recession as well. And so the natural inclination when everything that was going up into the right starts going down to the right is to completely freeze up and to pull liquidity out of the market and to sit on the sidelines. Um, and I think it's, it's a little bit of like a cognitive 
fallacy to, to do that because when things correct, you know, if you're able to cash things at the, at the nadir, like that's exactly where you do want to invest. And so when I tell our LPs and when I tell the world at large is like, when you're investing in like pre-seed and seed stage founders, like they're not looking at exit opportunities for years and years and years. Like maybe a couple of them exit in like three or four years, but for the most part, like it's like seven to 10 years. And so, you know, you can't, decide what the right time is to send a mission to Mars based on what the weather on Mars is today. Like this is space exploration and you need to send a mission out there knowing that like in six months when you're ready to land, that's when you want to pay attention to the weather. Um, and so, you know, early stage founders now, I think are in a good place where it's like the markets are what they are today, but it's going to look like a wildly different picture, you know, seven years from now when you're looking at an exit opportunity and you can't plan for that. You just have to plan to build a good business, build a resilient business, build one that's like actually you know, unit profitable. Um, and then the rest will take care of itself. Like don't like let the market determine what kind of business you're building. And that's kind of what I mean by like deep space exploration. And I know you've said this elsewhere as well, but um, I think it is a point worth hammering on that. It also is more attractive for people who are joining early stage fintechs if, you know, valuations aren't sky high and they have some reasonable estimation that those things that, you know, however much, you know, however many options that promise could appreciate at a reasonable, reasonable value. Yeah, I think it's tough. I think it's tough. Like, I think, you know, when you're when you're raising for a company, it's like a math equation and there's three variables. Um, one variable is what do I want the valuation to be? The other is how much do I want to raise? And then the third is, you know, how much dilution do I want to take? And it's kind of an output of the other two. Um, and so when you're a founder, you're trying to mediate between those three things. And I think it's very hard as a founder not to take the highest valuation you can get. You know, if the amount that you're raising is constant, it means you're taking less dilution. And that's good for you because you save more equity to like give out to other investors and people um, in the future. And, you know, you get better press when you have a good valuation. You, you know, look like a more established company when people say that you're a unicorn. But it's it's a tricky balance to strike. And it can be a little bit of a trap sometimes because if you have two companies that were launched at the same time and they have competing products that look similar and one company raises at like the same level of development and one company raises at a $50 million valuation and one company raises at a hundred million dollar valuation and they're competing for like senior talent. If you're senior talent and you're sitting there and you're like looking at your offer, you say, basically I have to wait two times as long for this company to make good on this valuation as for the $50 million company. So I'm going to go to the company where like I can, you know, own more of the business or like, you know, get in at a lower valuation because I know the multiple on that is going to be higher. And I think it's a tough situation to be in when you're a founder and you want the like good headline valuation because you make yourself really expensive. That makes it harder for others to come in and invest in you down the line, makes it harder for people to join you if they want to get a good return on their equity and makes it harder for people to acquire you. So I, I do think it's like is a little bit of a trap that we all fell into in the last two years. Yeah. And uh, that actually bridges very well to my next question I kind of want to talk about. So you've completely spanned the spectrum from kind of employee number one at Funding Circle to joining Google, arguably, you know, one of the biggest and most influential tech companies in the world. So for our listeners who maybe are not in fintech today, but aspire to be in fintech, kind of what are what do you think some of the key pros and cons of joining an earlier versus a later stage fintech? And kind of how do you, you know, if you had to recommend, not that you have to, kind of which way would you would you lean if you could go back and do it all over again? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot, honestly. You know, a startup of one versus a company of 100,000 as Google is are two very, very different professional experiences. I'm glad that I've had them both. And I think they're both super instructive. If I can make a recommendation, you're like starting out your career today, I would probably say go to the big company first. You know, the 
and and, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, working in early stage companies forces you to be resourceful, to be scrappy, to be entrepreneurial, and to be self-taught. And all those things have actually really paid dividends for me starting up this week in fintech and starting the fintech fund where it's like, well, nobody else is going to solve this. You've got to go solve it yourself and like do it quickly, do it effectively. Don't worry about doing it perfectly. Like even if it doesn't look good, like just ship it and move on because um, you have too many things to do. Um, and I like really developed comfort with that and with that level of ambiguity working early on at Pedal and at Funding Circle. And that's super valuable to me right now. Um, like I talked to other emerging managers who were like, we're doing a four week design sprint with a brand team that we're like paying a lot of money for to like help us decide what our website should look like. And I'm like, I slapped my website together for like a hundred bucks on Squarespace in two hours. And I don't care what it looks like. Cause I don't think any founder is going to decide whether or not to work with me based on like what my website looks like. And, and just like kind of that, like ruthless prioritization and knowing how to ship quickly, you learn at an early stage startup. And I think it's super valuable, but I was really jealous early on when I was working at these early stage startups and we'd hire people from like McKinsey and we'd hire people from Google and they'd come in with frameworks and mental models and structured thinking and ways to solve problems based on their prior experience and, you know, defined skill sets, whether it's like BD or finance, um, where they, you know, really knew the space that they were um, working on. And I didn't feel like I had any of those things. Um, and so I was this generalist and I was this generalist who was learning quickly but I didn't really feel like I had a marketable skill set. And I, you know, looking backwards, kind of wished that I'd had like at least like two years of consulting experience or something that I could really like lean on if I needed to lean on anything in the early stage startups. And so joining Google like later on was uh, super interesting to me because it kind of showed me how a well-run organization executing against a large strategy looks like. You have everybody kind of like filling their own role and like interoperating neatly and you understand like how you build things piecemeal and, you know, steer the ship and keep it from crashing. If I could do it again, I would probably do it the other way where I'd say like, go to a big company and like grab coffee with everybody you can play around with all the pieces. If you don't like what you're doing, flip to another team and do something else. And then when you figure out what you like, what you're good at, go to an early stage startup and just like double down on that and, and really, you know, blow it out of the water with the thing that you enjoy working on. You know, as, as we kind of round up to towards the end of the interview, um, I always love to ask people kind of, you know, we talked, to, we started going there just now, but um, what are some other kind of hard-earned learnings you'd like to share with founders, operators um, that you kind of, you know, had to learn the hard way and you'd like to share? I would say your longest term currency is reputation. And like this gets said a lot, so it's not a particularly like novel insight, but um it's even as big as fintech is, it's still like a very, very small ecosystem and treating people well, making good on your commitments, being a thoughtful um, you know, partner to all stakeholders really pays dividends down the line. And I cannot recommend playing long-term games enough to people. Don't be overly transactional. Don't be um, you know, duplicitous. Um, you know, don't break commitments and try to honor the commitments that you make to other people. I mean, I think that that's like generally a good lesson to learn, but like, especially in a space as small as fintech, I think it's just like really valuable. And the other, you know, I spent a lot of time working for different leaders and managers, thinking about the kind of leader and manager that I wanted to be. Um, and like that happens more quickly than you expect it does in your career, or one day you're an independent contributor and the next day you're like managing, it feels like the next day you're managing a team. And so now I finally get to kind of make good on all those thoughts. And one that's like particularly important to me is being high integrity in all of your interactions. And that means to me, high integrity means 
have a willingness to always be challenged and to reevaluate your priors and to have a sound rationale for all of your decision making. I uh, invested early in this company, Tribal, um, that's building uh, you know Brex and Ramp type product for emerging economies. And the founder, Amr, had this great practice where he would give, they would hold these monthly town halls for the company and he would give a $50, I think $50 Amazon gift card to whoever asked the hardest question in the town hall. And I think that that's such a great practice because what it tells me as an employee is, it's not just like, I won't get in trouble for asking a hard question. I'm incentivized to ask it. What it tells everybody else is like, this is an environment where like we ask each other the tough questions because we know it's going to make us better. And we know that tackling tough topics, while it's not enjoyable all the time, it can be painful, really helps us stay on the same page and talk about the things that need to be fixed and solved. And I've worked at many organizations where information is siloed and where there's like taboos and people can't talk about the things that we think need to be changed. And so nothing gets done. And when you paper over those things long enough, your organization falls apart because what looks like a small crack broadens into like a huge hole over time. And so I think, you know, being a high integrity leader and building a high integrity organization means like being willing to be challenged at any time and always welcoming those challenges and understanding that there's a learning opportunity in all of them. That reminds me of one of my favorite mantras, which is uh, easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. And finally, you know, we love to ask every guest kind of what they enjoy doing outside of work. So how do you relax and keep saying outside of the work you're doing at FinTech Fund? I'll, I'll put a little spoiler here and I say, I know you have a love of music and much like DJ Soul himself, I've been known to spin the discs. Yeah, uh, man, if I could go back, I really wish I would have like put a little bit more love into um, you know my DJing ability because it's something that I really get a lot of enjoyment from outside of work. I don't know. I love all the standard stuff that you'd expect somebody like me to enjoy, like travel and, you know, reading and surfing. But I've always like, you know, people go to museums and look at art and they like really appreciate it. And it really like means something to them on uh, an emotional level. Like I've never like totally gotten that. Like I like art, but like it just doesn't resonate with me like it does with some people. But that's how I feel about music. Music has always meant a lot to me and uh, affected me. And my uh, interest in music has like grown and changed a lot over the years. And I am the worst musician of all time when it comes to any instrument. I tried to sing in my friend's band in high school and I was a terrible singer. And I uh, play some guitar, but not very well. And I played every instrument you can imagine, like trumpet, harmonica, drums. And it was just like all terrible. And so, a friend introduced me to DJing in college and it was around the time that electronic music was getting more popular. And it was really an awesome opportunity for me because um, there is technique and a technical skill set required for DJing, but it's different than instruments in that you can improvise in like a little bit more of a structured way. And you really benefit from being able to like read the energy of people listening to the music and put things together in a way that's like surprising, but actually works. Um, and like, so somebody who's like, for somebody who's like such a big fan of music, like I am, like just getting like put things together that you'd never picture together and um, like create something that's like net new from like a lot of different like pieces and moving parts. is just awesome. And so I always like, just, I don't know, I would DJ parties and like would not talk to anybody and people would come up and they'd be like, oh, all right, like, do you want to take a break? You look like you're like not having fun. I'm like, this is like the most fun right now is like, I'm just experimenting like, putting sounds together and like, I'm, you know, enjoying the results as much as everybody else. 
Um, so I, I do really love that. And I hope that at some point in my life, I get more of a time to like dedicate to that. I hope to uh, hear you spin the discs at FinTech Formal. But uh, <laughs> um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And, you know, sincerely, we wish you all the best of luck growing the community and doing all you do to keep us up to date with everything that's happening in FinTech. Thanks. I mean, I, I would say the same to you. Thanks for everything that you're putting out there, um, you know, for hosting me, but also just for, um, you know, giving people a chance to tell their stories in FinTech. I think it's super valuable. And um, I, it does not go unnoticed kind of how much research you put into each of these conversations. So it was really fun to talk and I hope we uh, see each other at another in-person event soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you love our show, please write a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and it helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you'll be able to access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the FinTech industry. As always, a very special thank you to our editor, Rafael Ostria. Until next time, your host, Andrew Janssens. Thank you.